0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good evening, everyone. What a what, a, what an awesome privilege and blessing it is to worship together. Um, great to hear all the voices sing praise to our great King, King Jesus couple things before I get into the message. I've already mentioned this. I'm going to mention it one more time because I want to hear the heart behind about what I'm about to say. I've pushed kids sermon notes this evening. i um, even going to offer a uh, reward. Not sure if that's good uh, pastoring or parenting, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so fill out the sermon sheets. We've got a gift card for you that uh, you can use with your parents' permission. Parents, don't, don't use it. Um, but here's why. This is for all of us, this text, no doubt. But I also know and it was what's been on my heart today. Kids, I want you to hear and understand the good news of the gospel. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift. It's nothing you could do. It's something God has done. I want you to hear that today from Ephesians 2. Because this is, this is amazing news. I'm sure every Christmas you, get, you hear amazing news or you see amazing news when you get gifts. I promise you, this is far, far better. So that's the incentive. Because I want you to dial in. I want everyone to dial in. But kids, I got to tell you, my heart is for you this evening. So with that said Um, You know we're in our sermon series, United in Christ. Um, Ephesians 2, Logan made this observation earlier when we were praying. Ephesians 2 picks up where Ephesians 1 left off. It's just dense with theology, dense with beauty. And we get to celebrate by looking at God's word, we get to celebrate what God has done to redeem his people to himself. And Ephesians 2 is all about that. So I need help with this sermon. So I'm going to briefly pray as I usually do, and then we'll get into the message. Oh God, what I have in front of me is simply words on paper. And what I need right now, what we all need, is to tune in to the Spirit. And to hear you, oh God, in your word, help us to apply what we see and read in your word. We need your help. And yes, I do pray for, for our children and adults as well. Either A, we'd be changed by the power of the gospel through this text and through the power of the Holy Spirit, or B, we'd fall more deeply in love with the riches of God's grace. I pray that not a soul walks out of this auditorium just not relishing in wonder of God's love in which mercy and grace pour forth. So help us to see that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, in in the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus, Um, The number of religions, cults, forms of philosophy in the Mediterranean region just grew at a breakneck pace. This is where Christianity is trying to thrive, and it's just pluralistic all around. When you read the New Testament, you receive a glimpse of various religions, philosophies, and cults. I mean, if you take an honest look at the New Testament... What do you see oftentimes, especially in the Pauline literature? You see Paul warning specific churches about heretical philosophies, about philosophies of the world. He's he's warning against false teachers. So I got to thinking, especially in light of this particular text, what were some of the religions that existed alongside Christianity in the first century? And more significantly, what did they believe about the concept of salvation and redemption? There's two words that we use all the time, salvation and redemption. I'll name a few, but these categories are very nuanced, of course. But what I'm trying to show is how the Bible's concept of salvation and redemption is different from all the other faith traditions. First, Judaism. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between Christianity and Judaism. Even within the religious hierarchy of Judaism, so all the priests, there was a split. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Pharisees believed in an afterlife. And, you know, we read about the Sadducees in the Gospels. They did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in an afterlife. But there are two significant differences between the Jewish concept of salvation and the Christian idea of salvation. First, Judaism believes salvation is connected to the whole. In other words, God redeeming or saving is connected to ethnic Israel. So how do you, get, how do you become saved? You, you join the club. It's all about being connected to the community. It's not individualized. As we're going to see in Ephesians 2, the Christian concept of salvation is very different. You are not saved by being a member of this local church. Coming to church every day, although good and biblical, does not save you. Second, regarding Judaism and Christianity and how they compare, many Jews obviously missed the Messiah. They waited. They waited. They waited. And then he came. And some of them were like, uh, I don't believe it. They missed him when he arrived, when he was incarnated. So it was Judaism. They had a different concept of salvation than what we read in Ephesians 2. The Greek concept of salvation was wrapped up with the Greek gods, which were many. Um, Obviously, many of you are aware of Greek mythology. But Greek salvation is better understood from a philosophical perspective. Many Greeks saw God as the supreme reality. They, They saw God as the necessary cause of the universe, and it was through the universe that they understood who God is. Within Greek philosophy, there's this thing called dualism, won't get into all the details, but basically it's like you got the spiritual over here, you got the material over here, and basically in our bodies, the the spiritual is trying to escape. It's like the spiritual is in prison, you need to get out of the material. I should note that Gnosticism, which means a secret knowledge, was also part of Greek philosophy, which actually made its way into parts of the Christian church, which Paul speaks against. The Romans. Obviously, the first century, you had Greco-Roman culture, so we got the Roman side of this. Romans were all over the place. Roman religion was diverse with all of its gods. We call this polytheism. But Caesar was basically the supreme god on earth. Like, so if you want to look to a god, who's god? Caesar! Caesar! The Roman emperor, and for example, Gaius Calibia, he ruled between uh, AD 37 and, and 41. He actually wanted to put a statue of himself in the Jewish temple. <laughs> and then he died. I mean, talk about a riot that was going to be on his hands if that happened. At the end of the first century, the emperor Domitian uh, ordered people to dress him as Lord and God. Suffice it to say, for many, salvation was, was through their ruthless overlords. So that is a little about the religious context context in the first century. And I think it's fair to say 21st century America is equally or perhaps even more diverse when it comes to religion. So what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions? Allow me to tell you a story. A while back I I read a blog post about um, the unique nature of grace in Christianity. Here's the small, a small excerpt of what I read. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from all around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They, be, they began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation? Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And I'm just trying to imagine this phrase in an English accent. And so C.S. Lewis says, what's the rumpus about? He asked and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. I get chills saying that. I would add to what Lewis said. What makes Christianity unique is the combination of God's grace and his His mercy. In so many ways, the grace and mercy of God to save and sustain sinners is what makes Christianity not only distinct, but I think it's just altogether appealing. People really and truly understand the grace of God. It's like, I want that. Let's just take concept of grace. There's no other concept of grace in the faith traditions that I mentioned, at least not the way the Bible explains it. Go ahead and look at the religious landscape in America. What religion has grace as the center of its faith? None. So with all that kind of as a backdrop to today's passage, now let's dig in and see the details and the beauty Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 10. You may have noticed a few things that are carried forward into Ephesians 2 from Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, I hammered that a person's union with God is because he or she is in Christ. It's nearly impossible to read Ephesians 1 without identifying that pattern. Well, the theme continues in this passage. In verse 6, it says, when a person is saved, he or she is seated in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. (laughs) It's like I'm I'm on repeat. Here we go again. In verse 7, we read God's grace and kindness is toward us, toward anyone who has faith in the gospel, because, what does it say? They are in Christ. In verse 10, it says a person is saved to perform good deeds. Why? Because you are in Christ. One of the beautiful themes of Ephesians is that everything about you is because you are in Christ. Paul is explaining in Ephesians the depth of your faith. Like how how deep does your faith go? Ephesians 1, get into Ephesians 2, helps you to see the depths of your faith. Like like a cold cup of water on a hot summer's day, remembering that you are in Christ quenches the thirsty soul. And over and over and over again, Paul is trying to show us why. Why? Another observation that we can make in Ephesians 2 is the contrast of being dead versus alive. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You once lived according to your passions of the flesh. Here's the bottom line. Before Christ, you were horrible. (laughs) Sean Powers was an awful person before Jesus. The theme of dead versus alive persists in verse 5. What Ephesians 2 helps us to understand is how a person can spiritually move from a place of deadness to being alive. The story of Nicodemus came to mind when I was pondering verse 5 of Ephesians 2. The story of Nicodemus from John 3 is relevant. When Nicodemus encounters Jesus, what does Nicodemus ask Jesus? How can a person be saved after he is already born and out of the womb? How do you go from your heart is alive as a rock, not alive at all, to all of a sudden knowing the love and grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ? How does that even happen? What does Jesus say? You must be born again. Here's how I'd boil down Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, verses 4 to 10. Consider this as a summary statement. It comes right out of the text. Because of God's love, Because of God's love, mercy is extended to sinners so that they might experience the gift of saving grace. And it is from the position of God's sovereign grace in which a person does good works for God. Within this summary statement are several exclusive claims about salvation. Underline that word mentally, exclusive claims about salvation. And I think they're all true. I'm going to take a look at these claims one at a time. Let's begin with the claim that God is merciful. What does it say in verse 4? But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. I ended my sermon two weeks ago highlighting those two English words that we saw right there, but God. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God. Your life was a hot mess, but God. Your rebellion was leading you into personal dissatisfaction, but God. Your life was a dumpster fire, but God. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Mercy, if you don't know, and kids I would write this down, Mercy is when punishment or discipline is deserved, but the punishment or discipline is withheld. Here's the deal. You all deserve the wrath of God because you have sinned against God. The only reason you, Christian, will not be the recipient of God's judgment is because of his mercy. Many people use the words mercy and grace synonymously. I think there's some confusion in people's mind. Now, they're connected, but they're actually very different. Don't want to confuse the two, because if you confuse the two, you miss out on God's heart to save a person from perdition, eternal damnation. I was helped by this particular quote um, from a Swiss reformer in the 16th century named Heinrich Bollinger. He tells us what God is up to in the salvation of souls, and he's commenting specifically on this text. He helps make sense of mercy. He says, Since there is no need for a long exposition of what is perfectly obvious, which is super ironic because I'm preaching on this text, and he's like, what do you even need to do that for? It's so clear. (laughs) Just read it. (laughs) He goes on, We shall explain this verse only briefly. Well, I'm doing it probably longer than him. By grace, Paul understands nothing but the rich mercy and abundant love of God that he has already spoken about at some length. And of which Ambrose, he's he's quoting another guy, in which St. Ambrose so eloquently and reverently says, the true riches of mercy are that it is not necessary to look any farther than this to receive it. Now he quotes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah said the same thing. I was made known to those who were not looking for me. And look at this this last sentence, these last two sentences. Mercy is really abundant when it is given to people who were not asking for it. This is the love of God towards us, which he showed us because he did not want us to perish. I mean, hear what he said? Mercy is really abundant or obvious when it is given people, given to people who are not asking for it. There's an acknowledgement that mercy isn't fully comprehended until it is received. After you've received God's mercy, you're like, oh, I get it now. I get it. God is so merciful. I deserve wrath because of my sin and rebellion and trespasses but mercy my uh, my kiddos have learned the meaning of mercy over the years there have been times when a child does something wrong warranting consequences now this is like every child ever born in all all existence right And with kids, they often know when they were wrong. They know if their hand was caught in the cookie jar, there will be consequences. Over the years, there have been several moments when a child did something wrong and warranted discipline, but instead of discipline, I extended mercy. The conversation kind of goes something like this, me. Do you know that you did something wrong? Child, yes. Okay, me, now that we both know you did something wrong, I'm not going to discipline you. Child, confused, why? (laughs) Mercy. Mercy. These conversations have led me to explain to my children the mercy of God. Because of your sin and trespasses, you deserve to live up to the name child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. You deserve the full extent of God's cosmic justice. But God, but God withholds his justice. Why? Because of Jesus. Ephesians 2.4 qualifies God's mercy by saying he is rich in mercy. And you know, you know what that says to me? God does not br- begrudgingly extend mercy. God does not look at Johnny and say, oh man, oh man, I don't know about that one. The greater awareness of sin results in a greater acknowledgement of God's merciful love. God extends mercy out of love. If God has set his electing love on a soul, God's mercy will follow regardless of the baggage connected to that person. Like, by all accounts, Sean Powers did not deserve salvation because there was a ton of baggage back there. It was heavy. But did that matter to God? No. Mercy. Take a look at verse, the rest of verse 4 and part of verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, you want to understand the why of mercy? It's right there. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So what's the motiv- motivating factor for God's mercy? It is God's love. He loves you. Let I me mean, just ponder for a moment how you would respond to someone when you've been wronged, Right? I know people can overreact. I can overreact over the littlest things. When someone treats you poorly, what's your reaction? You might become frustrated. Your heart can become hard when you are offended by another person. Now consider your sin before a holy and just God. And out of love, God shows you the riches of his mercy. Why did God show you the richness of his love by extending mercy to you? Because at the cent, because as the creator of the universe, it's his prerogative and his prerogative alone, that's an exclusive statement, God's prerogative alone to extend mercy to you so that, your, so that his glory might be seen in your life. What is also emphatic about verse five is that God pours out his mercy even though you were dead. It's not like you are in the ER and the EKG machine indicates the slimmest glimmer of hope and God breaks in with his mercy and the heartbeat is is all of a sudden back to normal. The EKG machine is not showing the slightest heartbeat. You were flatlined. Only a miracle can bring you to life. And if you are a Christian, you went from flatline to to seeing a vibrant heart on display on that EKG machine. You received the miracle of salvation. If you're not a Christian, then the EKG machine is still not indicating a heartbeat and you remain an object of God's wrath. You deserve eternal punishment. Only God has the authority to withhold his wrath even though your sin is an egregious offense against him. So all of this is what mercy means in this passage, the rich mercy of God. So what is grace? Obviously more to the point of Ephesians 2. What is grace? Grace is being given something, a gift that you do not deserve. So kids, you want to hear that? Grace is being, a, being given a gift you do not deserve. Now, mercy, again, is withholding a just punishment. Grace is God giving you something you did not earn, salvation in particular. At the end of verse 5, it seems Paul is writing a parenthetical statement in the middle of another thought. He says, by grace you have been saved. And then he moves on from the idea until verse 8, when he repeats and expands what it means to be saved. Here might be the most well-known verses in the book of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast about it. If you contribute. Point zero, 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 zero. We'll get to a 1% to your salvation. Then you have the ability to boast. And Paul says, No. not at all. Now let's really unpack these two verses because we're really getting to the heart of the gospel. As I've already said, we're getting to the heart of this, the exclusivity of the gospel. The primary question Paul is answering is how is a sinful, wretched person saved? And again, here's what makes Christianity distinct from all other religion and faith traditions. Even, even as I, as I even I grew up, as a Catholic, very different from what we read here in Ephesians 2. Growing up, I was told that the way to heaven is to be a good person. That's what I was told over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum. It went something like this. Yes, there will be bad things I do in life. There are sins I will commit. But if I can do enough good deeds, specifically toward other people, then maybe the scales of justice will be in my favor after I die. On the other hand... This kind of teaching caused me to hold doors for the elderly. That's a good thing, right? It caused me to care for those in need. That's good. This kind of teaching ingrained into my thinking that my good works matter, even though this kind of teaching is very self focused. Like, it's good to hold doors, it's good to be kind. On the other hand, you know what I had? I had an excuse to sin. I could be a nice guy in the day and a jerk at night. Well, this kind of theology is dangerous and it cultivates hypocrisy. At least it did for me growing up. It's not in the Bible. There's no grace from God in thinking that it is up to you or me to save. A theologian from the 4th century, John Chrysostom said plainly about verse 8. Do not rely on your own efforts, but on the grace of Christ. You are, says the apostle, saved by grace. Therefore, it is not a matter of arrogance here, but faith when we celebrate. We are accepted. This is not pride, but devotion. And I would also add that knowing you've been saved by God's grace alone, what does it foster? Humility. It fosters humility. When you realize you don't deserve it, and yet God gives you the gift, humility wells up in the heart. Perhaps tears stream from the eyes. Only based on On grace are people delivered from their desperate situation of sinfulness which separates them from God. When a person is given faith from God to believe the sinless life of Jesus, his atoning death and resurrection from the dead, God's lavish grace is finally recognized. When a person is given faith, he or she all of a sudden is like, whoa. (laughs) So this is what everyone's been talking about at that church. This is amazing grace. Here's what you don't necessarily see in the English, but that the Greek actually makes really emphatic. This is a really, I think, helpful point when we talk about God saving faith. When God saves, he keeps the person until the end. Again, we don't see the nuance here in our English, and that's okay, but in the Greek, it's actually really clear. When God saves, he does not let go. When God saves, he's not like rolling the dice and being like, all right, we're going to see if this person's good works and get them to heaven. Consider this in familial terms, family terms. Ephesians 1.5, we, we, we went through this, says God's children have been adopted. They've been adopted out of the devil's family and into God's family. When earthly parents adopt a child, there's never a point, at least I haven't met this person, there's never a point in the future when that child becomes unadopted. My point is accented when you consider the actions of our Heavenly Father who never makes mistakes, never makes mistakes. God never makes mistakes. I I think somebody needs to hear this. Christian, God showing you his saving grace upon you was not a mistake. It wasn't an oops. It was intentional. And you are a son or daughter of a loving father. Rest in the assurance that God provides in theological terms, I'm talking about the doctrines of uh, perseverance or preservation of the saints. But here's what you really need to know. God is faithful to keep you until the end. Just think about all of the doubts you've had in life. Just think about all the moments when you felt like you could not cut it. I don't know a Christian who has not wondered if he or she can continue to hold on to God in the midst of suffering. What about those self-inflicted crisis moments? The perpetual sin Does God give up on you? No, he does not give up on you. God does not give up on you, but you know what? I think he doubles down. Why? God is faithful. Wrapped up in the mercy and grace of God is his faithfulness. When you read the Bible from the beginning to the end, several themes do emerge. God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises is one of those themes. If God has promised to save you, he is faithful to keep you until the end, especially throughout all of life's circumstances. And yes, life can be extremely difficult. It can be hard. There is suffering. There is pain. There are doubts. There is wondering. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Many years ago, I was discipling a young man who was vexed, just vexed about his assurance of faith. Every time we gathered to talk, he lamented that he did not know if he was saved, even though he shared a story about an exact moment in his life when God poured his mercy and grace upon him. I'm not talking about a kid who made his way to the bar every night and was carousing women. I'm not talking about that kind of kid. Now, he he lacks self-assurance for for certain, but more than the lack of self-assurance, he lacked the faith to believe God is faithful. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the faithfulness of God in the Bible and the faithfulness of God in his life. The salvation, this salvation from God delivers people who are dead in their transgressions because of God's sovereign grace. And based on God's grace, one has been saved from God's wrath, and God continues to keep you until the end. So right now, if you're struggling to believe in God's promise to keep you until the end, then plead and pray with God for a greater faith, trust, in his promises. Bank your life on the fact that God is faithful, even though there are times when you feel you're like your faith is leaky. Trust Him. I've already mentioned this, but. I think it's time to highlight what I mean when I say the exclusivity of the gospel. When I read Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 10, I can't help but acknowledge that what is being assumed by Paul is that the only way to be reconciled is through God's sovereign choice. Our our culture bristles against this idea. Exclusive claims are just not popular, and I think we need to settle this within our hearts. If you make an exclusive claim, what is being assumed is that there are are counterclaims in which are false. In the first century, the New Testament writers did not think they were offering a nice alternative to the other religions. I don't think the Apostle Paul or John or Peter were like, hey, in the midst of all this stuff, hey, we got a nice alternative. This isn't like all roads lead to Rome. That's not what they were thinking. No, they believed they were offering the only way to be saved and reconciled to God. They were preaching the exclusive gospel For all to hear, for certain, but exclusive nonetheless. Here's a popular example of an exclusive claim. And I actually had a little fun thinking about this. (laughs) Um, Two plus two equals four. I know, you're you're laughing. (laughs) We've talked about this fun conversation. Two plus two equals four. Now on the one hand, if you do a deep dive into mathematics, you find videos and articles attempting to break the rules of mathematics. How do I know this? Because I was sucked into the YouTube vortex of watching videos of mathematicians trying to explain how two plus two equals five. And I was like, one, one, I do not like math at all, period. But I was just fascinated nonetheless. I was like, whoa. I mean, he's carrying the at zero, and we got an X and a Y, and what's going on here? I remained unconvinced, and I, I'm not a bright guy. So I understand that. But I remained unconvinced. If I have a red and blue crayon in my left hand, and if I have, um, and I give that to my daughters, and in my other hand, my right hand, I have a yellow and orange crayon, and I give those to my daughter, she now has a specific number of crayons in her hand. She has four crayons. I do not care what language you say the word for. You can change the symbol of four for all you want. I don't care. If I repeat the same process, while all the variables remain constant, my daughter will receive the same amount of crayons. So what's my point? We live in a culture that is currently thriving by challenging any and every exclusive claim. We live in a culture that has a strong disdain for objective truth. I'm waiting for the day when I'm standing in the middle of a thunderstorm when someone says to me, nah, 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 it ain't raining, it's actually sunny. Waiting for that day. Our postmodern culture aims to make everything relative. Truth is no longer an objective claim, but it's whatever you want truth to be. What does all this have to do with Ephesians 2? What we see in this passage is an exclusive truth claim, actually several truth claims. It is an exclusive claim that invites all to hear, but it's exclusive in how it's applied. According to Holy Scripture, there's only one solution to the dead human condition caused by sin. And out of all the various perspectives of how a sinful person is reconciled to God, I think Ephesians 2 provides the most compelling answer. Only God saves through faith in Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. The salvific mercy and grace of God are received through faith in Jesus Christ. I remember when I got saved. And I remember I was weeping. I was on my knees. I had this navy blue Bible that someone had given to me. And I just remember thinking in my head and then saying it out loud, if all this is true, if all these claims are true, I have no choice but to follow you. None. No choice. So Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 10 is crystal clear about how a person is saved. But I can't end this sermon without addressing how your good works fit into your redeemed life. You might ask, if salvation is solely because of God's grace, then do my good works account for anything? Like holding that door for the elderly person? Being kind? Does that account for anything? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse 10 brilliantly pulls together the place of your good works before your great God. Because you've been saved by God's grace, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works it says in verse 10 which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them just stunning your good works are not in vain because your good works have been laid out for you by God what are you called to do you're called to walk in what God has provided has God provided you a job you do your job to the glory of God You do those good works to the glory of God. Has God provided you with children? You do the work of parenting to the glory of God. Has God provided you a spouse? You work hard to love your spouse well to the glory of God. Has God called you to serve in unique capacities, right? You serve to the glory of God. The good works that God laid out for you ahead of time are done as a result of saving faith. And should it be any other way? should it be any other way? Like, were my my parents right in hammering in my head that you got to do good things to get to heaven? Or, as we see here, do my good works actually are a result of what God has done in the heart? A result of experiencing and knowing the grace and mercy of God that came through his love. I mean, just think about it for a moment. If God in love saved you from eternal damnation, why wouldn't you do good works for God? If you've experienced the mercy and grace of God, what other option do you have but to serve God because of all of what he has done for you? What other option is there? And when you serve the one who saved you, God's grace and mercy go with you the mercy and grace of God that was thrusted upon you at salvation is now working in and through you so that others can see the transformative power of the gospel at work in your life. So yeah, good works matter because they ultimately reflect God in your life. I'll end by reminding you of the five solas of the, of the Reformation, because we see several of them right here in Ephesians 2. If you don't know them, they're really good to memorize. First one, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solo Christu, through Christ alone, soli. Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit RedemptionHillDSM.org.